Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So, hey guys, welcome back. We're going to do another episode here, the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Um, I want to share a quick story with the two of you. Um, some years back, I was doing a 360 assessment of a client that I had actually worked with for a long time. I mean, I've known this guy many, many years. As I was doing the 360 assessment, one of his employees said he takes all the fun out of coming to work in the morning. <laughs> and when I gave him this feedback, he smiled, you know, shyly. Not shyly, but wryly, I will say, because he's familiar with the Enneagram. And uh, he says to me, looks me dead in the eye, and he says, we're not here to have fun. We're here to work. It's my kind of guy. Your kind of guy, of course. So, of course, he was an Enneagram type one. But I want to assure our fans that even though we are going to be talking about Enneagram type one, we're going to have some fun today. Okay. So, let's get into the two movies that we picked to talk about Enneagram type one. Uh, TJ and Gracia, these are your movie picks, sort of, uh, for the most part, I guess, um, with, with a little influence maybe. But uh, tell us what the movies are, why you picked them uh, as related to point one. Sure. So we're going to talk about the movie Chocolat, the 2000 film, and Sicario from 2015 by uh, Denis Villeneuve, I think. Is that how you say it? <laughs> no, it's Denis Villeneuve. Nuve? Yeah, Denis Villeneuve. Any French accents will defer to TJ. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not fluent in French anymore. I was when I was a kid. I went to French Immersion Elementary School. So the ability to pronounce French words correctly got in there at an early enough age that I can still do it. Uh Uh-huh. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. So I'm not even going to try to to get it exactly right, but as we go, we'll do. I will say he's one of my favorite directors, so I'm happy to be talking about this movie. It's a movie I love. Um, But uh, um, anything anything else about that, TJ? Um, Yeah, I I had heard about Sicario for years. Actually, I had bought the Blu-ray, I don't know, six years ago or something, and it's been sitting on my shelf, and I had not watched it until you had been talking to us about it. And I just was totally blown away. Like, I missed the boat. I should have seen this movie years ago. It's so good. I'm excited to talk about it. And uh, Chocolate, I had seen a couple years ago. And I just think it's a it's an incredible film for the journey for a one. You know, the, the, the journey that a one can make from being unhealthy to healthy or, or some version of that. Great. Uh, TJ Dahl, you had never seen Sicario either. Is that correct? I hadn't. I had vaguely heard of it when it was in the theaters, but hadn't heard anything, whether it was good or not, what it was about, who was in it. Like, Uh I couldn't have told you a single thing about it. So I saw it for the first time in preparation for this podcast. Pretty damn good. Very good movie. Yeah, it is. It is up there for me. It's one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, My my brother, who um, is not quite as much of a film buff as I am, but, uh, you know, he generally has good tastes. He and I both went to see this around the same time separately, and he hated it. And I just, I haven't spoken to him since. Uh, that was uh, 2015. Uh, you know, how do you even talk to somebody who doesn't love this movie? So uh, um, I'm a big, big fan. And I got to tell you guys, any movie 
where there's a row of big black SUVs driving at high speed right up on each other's bumpers. I'm in, right? I'm, 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 I'm in. I'm in. It's like, just show me that, and this is a movie I'm gonna love, right? Like, uh, I think of, uh, I think of the Kingdom, for example, the Peter Berg movie about Saudi Arabia uh, and um, the uh, terror attacks. You know, the fictional terror attacks there. Not the greatest movie. I wouldn't put it in Sicario's kind, but I love it, and I think it's just because it has SUVs going really, really fast. You know, really, really close together. So, uh, and, and that happens in Sicario. All right. So, um, and we are associating this with uh, Enneagram Type One, and um, you know, we have a real Type One with us, TJ and Gracia. So, uh, uh, and we're exhausting our co-host inside the type episodes with this one right so uh we did type eight then type four now type one so i'm going to give a little bit of an overview about uh type one and uh then we're going to ask tj um to give a little further information on type one or to fill in the blanks okay so enneagram type one is what i call striving to feel perfect i almost said excited uh, had a little brain uh, no definitely there. not definitely not in fact um, uh, striving to feel excited at point seven is one of the connecting points, and it's kind of one of the challenges for the one. So in their effort to feel excited, they kind of develop this distortion about what it means to strive to feel excited, and they see it as something kind of threatening, right? So we call that the neglected strategy. Now, this is not to say that ones never have fun, right? Or that they can't have fun. Uh, most ones I know have a good sense of humor and, you know, will, um, you know, enjoy themselves. But there's this always this feeling with them of, I can't lose control, right? If I go too far, then something bad's going to happen, okay? Now, they're striving to feel perfect. Of course, if you ask anyone, they're going to say, well, I know that nobody can be perfect and, you know, nothing will ever be perfect, et cetera, et cetera. And yet still there's this drive to do things right. And I've had people say to me or, you know, one group in particular tell me one time that, you know, they, they were talking about what it was like to be a one. And the term they came up with was to feel beyond reproach. Right, uh, so that nobody can criticize you. Now, for me, that's just kind of semantics, right? They kind of mean the same thing, but I get the nuance, right? I get that it's coming from some sort of externalized sense of criticism, okay, that can be driving them. So, but we, you know, for make it easy, we call it striving to feel perfect. Now, the other connecting point is at point four, and we call that the support strategy. And what can happen with the one is they kind of rely on striving to feel unique to reinforce or support their feeling of being perfect. And, you know, we can say that, you know, very often you'll see ones sort of feeling sorry for themselves or being angry that they're the only one who is working so hard. They're the only one who is putting in the effort, who's, you know, looking for the mistakes, who's staying up extra hours to get things done. And they can become sort of, you know, frustrated and angry and depressed and melancholic for that. They can also use it to feel sorry for themselves, right? So that's one of the dynamics happening there regarding the strategies. When it comes to the core qualities, the core quality that we associate with point one is objectivity. Now, I've had talks with some other Enneagram teachers, and they say, well, they see that more as a five thing. But what I am talking about here is the ability to see the world as it is without prejudice and preconception. 
and the ones feel like they lose contact with that. And because they can't see things clearly and without prejudice and preconception, they start gathering rules, right? They start collecting biases and structures in their brain to help them make judgments about these things. Okay. And these rules become just that, right? They can become things that really are restrictive for them and limit their ability to be flexible and to truly be objective. Okay. So we tend to see ones, or at least in a lot of the literature, as how oh, they're sober as judges, right? They make good decisions because they're objective and so forth. Not always, right? Not always because there's this angry rule following that can limit their ability to be truly objective. The other connecting points, the core qualities are joy at point seven. They feel joy stunted and individuality at point four can feel stunted for them. Now, in the classic Enneagram, the vice is anger, right? They're angry that the world is not the way that it should be. They're angry at people for not following rules. And so we see this underpinning, this tone of anger in the one that's often held on to, right? There's this sort of constricted anger of, you know, that's not quite coming out, but you can see it right below the surface. And we certainly see that in these movies, especially uh, Chocolat. Um, now, uh, TJ, I noticed you pronounce it Chocolat. Uh, 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 TJ uh, Daw, what's the official uh, pronunciation? Chocolat. Okay, good. So uh, I forget my point now that I got the pronunciation right, but we certainly see that anger in that movie, right, underpinning it. But it's a held-in anger. Okay, And um, the um, virtue is serenity. Okay, This is what the one is striving for. It's this sense of inner calm, this peacefulness, this letting go of the anger. And uh, finally, we have the uh, fixation of resentment, right? Angry and resentful that people are not doing what they should do, that the world is not as I think it should be, etc. TJ and Gracia, you're you're nodding your head a lot as I'm speaking. Um, (laughs) Go ahead. Let's hear it. Well, I'm going to, as through this whole episode, I'm going to try to be careful about not when talking about the one, not just talking about myself, you know, try to try to generalize Obviously, I have my own experiences, but uh, right. as you were talking about the anger, I was thinking about recently, I remember seeing on a Facebook thread, a person who shall remain nameless that we all know who who likes to stir up trouble on uh, any grand Facebook threads made a comment somewhere about how ones actually aren't angry. Uh, anger isn't really a thing that's about ones. And that comment really made me angry. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, this person has never met a one in real life, apparently. Uh, No, I I agree with all that. I think that's all very good. Um, One question I had for you, because I I don't know that you ever really use this language in your materials, but a lot of people talk about the inner critic of the one. And I know that that, it's certainly an experience that I have, but as a one, I don't know what it's like to maybe be somebody of another type who also has an inner critic. So you know, maybe it's stronger with ones. What's been your experience in in working with people of how that inner critic thing works? Yeah, I think everybody has some kind of inner critic, but they're all just telling us different things, right? And, um, you know, and so I think that with the one, that idea of an inner critic is much more vivid, right? And it's, it's almost like they're wearing it in public, 
You, you know, I mean, not not consciously, deliberately, you know, showing it off or anything, but you can see through it. You can see it happening. So, um, so yeah, the inner critic is all, and it's interesting because it tends to be an internalized inner critic, right? Meaning that, again, obviously all of them are, that's why they call it an inner critic, but they're taking somebody else's criticisms of them or perceived or anticipated criticisms of them. It's just much closer to the surface, I guess. Okay. But one of the reasons I don't talk about the inner critic is because I think everybody has one. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things in your Enneagram guidebook that I really liked is you say, stressed ones deal with the world by becoming rigid, judgmental, and critical of themselves and others. And I did like that you put themselves first. Oh, absolutely. Because people can feel criticized. Now, when we criticize people, it's because if you're coming from a healthy place, you generally want to help. You want things to be better. You want to help someone, but it comes across as, as a very in, in a very critical way. But I promise you, as critical as you think we are of you, we are a thousand times more critical of ourselves. Yes, yes, it's an excellent point, right? And um, it, it's funny because when I, when I ha- and you're not doing this, I want to be clear. But when I have type one clients say, "Yeah, well, I'm harder on myself than I am on other people." You know, I say, well, okay, but that doesn't give you the right to be an asshole, right? right. So, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, but and and again, I'm not saying that's what you said, but uh, but yes, you're absolutely right, and and you know, and I, I gotta tell you, the, the ones are one of the enneagram types that I personally feel most sorry for, right? Because I just think to myself, myself, what? How awful would it be? to be carrying that around, right? That voice criticizing all the time. Right? But we also love to be martyrs. So, you know, yeah. it kind of balances out. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. But it's, it's just for me, it's, um, you know, again, because I, as it, you know, my eightness makes me kind of say, you know, I don't care what you think sort of thing. Of course I do, but not in the same way. I, 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 for me, it would just be awful to be a one. I, I would. I just couldn't imagine anything worse. <laughs> that's that's not true. That's not true. It would be much worse to be a four. Right. Uh, so <laughs> Obviously, goes without saying. No, only kidding. Only kidding. All right. Good. Anything else about the one? The one thing I'd add to that is building on everything you've said because you anticipated a lot of things that I was going to say. My mother is a one. My older sister is a one. They're both preserving ones. There was a real one-ish culture in my family growing up. Four has that direction, direct connection to one. But one of the, uh, my mother and sister got into the Enneagram after I got into it. And we've had a lot of heart-to-heart conversations about their lives, inner and outer. And just to second what you've said, it is a hard go to be a one, not just because of all the things that you've said, but because ones are probably the last type to give themselves any compassion for how hard it is to be a one. Absolutely. So there's this extra layer of difficulty aside from the brutal inner critic that's just on you all the time and the fact that the world frustratingly refuses to be the way it should. And this is why ones are angry, despite what, you know, your your friend there, TJ, uh, posted on Facebook. Um, they are angry. And it's, but it's almost as if they're too constrained to demonstrate that anger, right? So it's this, you know, you can see a lot of times with the one where the anger is ready to burst, but their face is holding it in, their body is holding it in, almost like uh, 
um, I think of that X-Men movie where Kevin Bacon would take all the energy and put it into the other people, you know, and then they would just, you know, shake and shake and then explode, right? And so it's almost like the the, the one never gets the chance to explode, right? They got to hold that all inside of them. So uh, it's an awful analogy. And uh, <laughs> maybe that, you know, but... Uh, uh, well, there's a, good, there's a good analogy in Chocolat that we'll talk about. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. All right, good. So let's get into the movies. And we're going to start with Sicario. And again, I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, I, it's, I've seen it many times. It's one of those movies, if it's on, boom. Especially if it's the SUV scene, um, you know, I'm, I'm stopping and, and I'm watching it. Um, there are times when I've said, ah, oh, you know, I haven't seen Sicario in a while. I'll pick it up. And I got to say that for me, this is, uh, you know, this is the script was by Taylor Sheridan. Right. And uh, who is famous, most famous now for the whole Yellowstone franchise. Okay? But he also uh, wrote some of my other favorite movies as part of a trilogy for this. A Hell or High Water with uh, Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges, which is a fantastic heist movie western. Uh, if Have you guys seen Hell or High Water? Oh, you're both saying no. Oh, my gosh. Guys, man, watch it this weekend. If, if you like Sicario, trust me, you will love Hell or High Water. And another one is Wind River, which I think takes place in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Is that TJ Jeremy Dunn. Renner? Jeremy Renner, yes. Um, and uh, really, really good movie. So he kind of did this Western trilogy, modern-day Western trilogy. Sicario, I think, was the first one of the three. But... Really great movies. It's a, you know, if you if you want to have a real guy movie, you know, weekend, watch those three movies, and um, you won't be disappointed. All right. So, uh, T.J. Ingrassi, I think you're going to tell us about uh, Sicario. All right. Sicario is the 2015 action thriller directed by Denis Villeneuve. The film follows the story of idealistic FBI special agent Kate Maser, played by Emily Blunt who is recruited by a government task force led by the mysterious and enigmatic Matt Graver, played by Josh Brolin, to aid in the war against drugs along the U.S.-Mexico border. As Kate becomes more deeply involved in the operation, she begins to realize that the rules of engagement are different from what she's used to, and the ethical lines become blurred. She also encounters the unpredictable and ruthless Alejandro Gillick, played by Benicio del Toro, a former Mexican prosecutor turned hitman, or Sicario in Spanish, uh, whose motives are unclear. As the team embarks on a dangerous mission to take down a powerful drug lord, Kate is forced to confront the realities of the drug war and the corruption that permeates the system, leaving her with a sense of disillusionment and a deep mistrust of the system that she's been a part of. I'm not a soldier. This is not what I do. Why is this what happens when they dig in? This is it. Gotta be careful around these people. CIA is not supposed to work this side of the fence. They will not survive here. You use me as bait. Freeze! You saw things you shouldn't have seen. Works for the composition. Providing a measure of order that we could control. I'm gonna tell everyone what you did. Again, 
fantastic movie. Three great performances in this, as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I would say four, but one of them is pretty small. Uh, Emily Blunt is fantastic in this. Okay? I think Josh Brolin is wonderful in this. And Benicio Del Toro, I don't know when he has been better. Right? I'm a big fan of his, but I think he was so, so good in this. And I want to say that I thought Jeffrey Donovan was great. Every scene Jeffrey Donovan was in, the uh, he was the uh, guy that they meet when they go down to Mexico, the one with the glasses. the And the mustache. Uh, and the mustache, <laughs> right. I, I, I just think Jeffrey Donovan was great in this and the few scenes that he was in, so uh, for what that's worth. Um, TJ Dahl, tell us a little bit about, uh, I'm going to have TJ and Gracia talk about the scenes, but I want to hear more about your just initial reaction to this movie, TJ Dahl, upon watching it. Well, just to build on what TG and Gracia said at the end of the summary there, I think this is the perfect arc for a one character. In the beginning scene of the movie, there's a raid on a house in Chandler, Arizona, that's held by cartel people, and then they find a bunch of corpses in the walls. So they establish right off the bat, they're dealing with clear evil. It's a lot like we talked about with the two Captain America movies we watched, where in the first one, Captain America is going up against the Red Skull. There's no ambiguity about this, like good versus evil. No one can feel really good about putting themselves and everything they've got up against this clear evil enemy, moral righteousness. There's just no ambiguity at all. And within this movie, the arc goes from moral certainty to ambiguity. So it's, I can't imagine a better personality type for the main character to be because she discovers just how much gray area there is. And suddenly there isn't a clear right thing to do. And she has a huge commitment to justice. She's also got a strong commitment to following correct procedure. And if you have to sacrifice correct procedure for justice, what does that do? And then what does your inner critic as a one allow you to do? And can you live with yourself? If you've do, do the ends, justify the means. What is worth doing to make the world a better place? Yeah. For this movie, for me, this movie was about a very simple question. What are the rules when there are no rules? Right? And this is what she was trying to figure out through the whole movie. Okay. So, um, TJ and Gracia, tell us, tell us a couple of scenes that, for you, made the oneness jump out. Sure. Well, so rather than a couple of specific scenes, I mean, I'll talk about some scenes, but there's two sort of themes that emerged that feel very, or at least that I, who happens to be a one, relate very much with. And the first one is what I call wanting to know all the things. Tell me all the things. I want all the information. Then I can be in control. Then I can move forward and do things the right way. So in the opening scene, when they're sizing her up for the uh, to add her to the task force, she asks them a couple questions. What's the objective? Do we get an opportunity at the men who are responsible for today? Then she gets uncomfortable when they change. They're actually going to go to Juarez for this raid, but she thinks they're going to El Paso. When she finds that out, she's very uncomfortable because now there's something has happened that she didn't know. She wasn't in control. Then she asks Alejandro, is there anything that I need to know about the cartels? And he's very mysterious and doesn't <laughs> give her what she wants. <laughs> Right. You're you're asking how to make a watch when uh, just pay attention to the time or something. Right. And like she that, looks right? at him like, I don't know what the hell that means, but okay. 
Then uh, before they go on the raid in Juarez, she gets into an argument with Matt, Josh Brolin's character, and she says, I'm not authorized to follow orders from Alejandro. And he says, fine, then stay here. But you don't really want to, do you? And she says, I just want to know what I'm getting into. She needs the information. And I was thinking, actually, just the thought occurred to me the second time that I watched this, that there could be what seems to be an overlap with a maybe a five-ish tendency for gathering the data, more information, and this avarice for information. But I think it's coming from a different place where it feels like the five maybe gathers data and information almost for the sake of the data. Like they want to have the data they can put on a shelf and they can look and they've got this shelf with all this information. Whereas the one wants it because with the information, then they can control the situation. Uh, does, does that feel yeah right? well I, I'll, I'll kind of make it even a little bit simpler than that right so f- fives want information so they can feel more detached right if I can if I can focus on gathering information it delays my actual engagement with the world right and with ones I want all the information so I know the right thing to do okay? and in the case of Kate I think she is a perfect example of the navigating subtype of the one, right? And this is something I know we're going to get into because I, I'm not going to get ahead of us here, but there are different ways of thinking about the subtypes of the one, okay? And my view is that what I call a navigating one wants to know what the social rules are so they can follow them, okay? And if I don't know the rules, I've got to get that information that will let me know what they are, okay? So yeah, same behavior, serving a different purpose. Yeah, and I think that's such that's the beautiful thing about the Enneagram is you can have nine people of nine types who on the surface seem like they're doing the same exact thing, yes. but it's for very different reasons. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So so go ahead. Uh, was there more you were going to say? Yeah, just I mean, there's, so this this theme occurs over and over again. She says, what's going on? What's the plan? I need to know what they used us for. Just tell us the truth. So just over and over and over again, she wants to know what's going on. Right. And then the second thing, of, you know, of course, this is as cliche as you could get, but just she wants to follow the rules. She wants to do things by the book. Uh, after the, in, the opening raid on the cartel house, uh, she's sitting with her partner, Reggie, and she asks him sort of imploringly, we did this by the book, right? And he says, come on, of course we did. You know, it's like she couldn't be more by the book, but even in then she's uncertain that they did things the right way. She's upset because they don't have jurisdiction in in Mexico and she lets them know it. Right. Uh, there's a later scene where she's talking with her boss, her FBI boss, and she's basically saying, we don't have the authorization to do this. And he tells her, if your fear is operating out, out of bounds, I'm telling you, you are not. The boundary has been moved. Yes. You're okay. You can you can do this. You're allowed. Yes. yes. It's what are the rules of engagement, right? What, you know, and, uh, and you're right. That I, I loved that line about the boundaries being moved, right? Because I was kind of joke about, I think even in our episode about the four, we talked about coloring inside the lines versus not coloring inside the lines. And for the one, I don't want to go outside the line, so I need to know where they are. And what he told her there was, don't worry. You know, we just, we just expanded the picture here. So you got a whole lot more space to operate in. And this has been decided by people way above us and far away on what the rules are. So good. TJ Dahl, any scenes jump out for you in particular that demonstrated oneness? Well, just to kind of build on what you were saying, she does want to know the information. And yet 
there's multiple times where she takes an ambiguous answer and doesn't say, what the hell does that mean? I need to know what's happening now. Tell me everything that I'm not going anywhere until you tell me. And that struck me as very navigating as well. There's a lot of listening and a lot of noticing. So when she gets an ambiguous answer from somebody, there's always a shot of her taking it in. And you can see the mental note that's being made in that moment. There's no voiceover. There's no obvious version of that. It's, there's Mario, something you said about navigating in our episode about that is navigating types are pretty good at nonverbal communication, whether it's with each other or just themselves. So in movies that have a lot of navigators in them, and I think this is one of them, I think Josh Brolin's character is a navigating type, possibly Benicio Del Toro's character too. We don't really get to know him that well. But still, there's this a movie full of nonverbal communication, full of subtle moments, and it does reward repeat viewings for that exact reason. So that when you know exactly what's really going on, more than the character knows when she's getting into it, you see, oh, this is the moment where she's being deceived. And this ambiguous answer, it's in the El Paso area. Oh, now I know yes. what that means. And you see her <laughs> clocking that of like, that's not a definitive answer. And I'm remembering that you said that, but I'm not going to push it further the way a transmitting one might. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so I, I think here I'm, I'm going to bring up uh, this topic that we need to talk about here. So the Enneagram is a model, okay? And uh, any model is only as good as its first principles, right? Its operating principles, its main assumptions, okay? And people can make different assumptions about something, have different first principles, and still both be right, okay? And the reason for that is because when we get to the next movie, shock a lot and that is what most people would call a social one in the literature okay i use the term navigating and i always say that there's a difference between being social and navigating this movie sicario as you said tj is all about navigating and that character is a navigating one now, some people might see that and say, well, she's not a social one because she's not trying to change the world, right? She's not trying to get everybody else to follow the rules. She's not the finger wagger, okay? Um, okay, it's a different operating assumption about what that word means. And if I have a specific definition of a word and I'm applying it consistently, then my model's okay. Right? I always say that a model has to be both internally and externally consistent. And other than that, it doesn't matter, right? Meaning it can't contradict itself and it can't contradict some external behavior or trait or characteristic that I'm seeing. So some people, and if you read the Enneagram literature, the Chocolat character reads like a, or looks like a, what the social one looks like, but he's not navigating. There's nothing navigating about that guy. Well, again, we'll come back to him. Kate is an absolute, true-to-life navigating type one. She's trying to figure out what are the rules so that she can follow them. And the only time she really gets frustrated with other people is when they're getting in the way of her following the rules. So that's where her anger, her frustration comes from. Okay. One of the theme things about Kate was... 
now we're talking Emily Blunt here, okay? Uh, but she's being teased about letting her personal hygiene go and not being as attractive as she used to be, all that sort of stuff, right? Uh, you know, not not plucking her eyebrows, only wearing one T-shirt or you know, or one bra or whatever it was. And I don't know if you guys noticed her apartment; it was as bare and you could tell she was just disinterested in her surroundings. And there's that one scene where she's standing in front of her closet and there's nothing in it, right? There's four empty coat hangers, okay? And no clothes in it. Navigating ones are not these perfectionists around their environment and around themselves that we see in the other subtypes, okay? Or can see in the other subtypes. They're indifferent to that sort of thing. Again, which speaks to my you know, uh, uh, theory of the uh, pattern of expression. Okay, indifference around the uh, preserving domain. Okay, so for me, this was a real life character expressing what navigating ones look like in real life. Uh, one other thing, her. Um, I always talk about the contradiction in ones, which is the um, restraint versus indulgence. Okay, and with her, it was the cigarettes. Right, just you know, there was this. You know, she's she's fighting. She desperately wants a cigarette, and then there's that one scene where after she has the. Um, experience with John Bernthal where he tries to kill her where they they just cut to her slowly opening the pack of cigarettes you know and it's this real indulgent moment on that so uh, another one-ish theme I saw okay all right uh what else any anything we missed about Sicario and type one or other thoughts about Sicario before we move on the final scene when Alejandro shows up in her apartment and uh, yes, pardon yes. me if I'm blowing this to anybody who's looking forward to seeing it, but it's just such a perfect conclusion of a yes. one's arc is yes. he needs her to sign a form that says everything they did was by the book and she refuses to sign it. And then he puts a gun under her chin and a tear rolls down her cheek and she reluctantly signs it. That's just such a perfect dilemma for a one. And, and also just... This movie did not have the ending that many action movies would, in which the final scene, Alejandro goes into Mexico by himself, tracks down the head of the cartel, and executes him. In many action movies, the righteous hero would show up at the last minute and stop him from doing that because it's not right. That didn't happen. That didn't even come close to happening. Things proceeded like they would have. She was just left to sit at home and be with the reality of like, I didn't get to follow the rules. The rules are not what I thought they were. The situation is more ambiguous than I would like it to be, even though there's clearly evil at play. I may have helped enable evil in order to combat evil and what the hell do I, and now I have to sign this paper that says it was all by the book. Tellingly, she's not in the sequel. So Alejandro recommends that she moves to a small town where the rule of law still exists. You will not survive here. You're not a wolf. This is the land of wolves now. And I wonder if that's what that character did in the fictional world of Sicario. Yeah, that was it, it. It was just perfect. And I'll tell you, one of the other things too. Speaking of Alejandro and his uh, exacting his revenge at the movie, this movie was cold and hard as a diamond, right? And the fact that Alejandro goes in there and meets the guy who, you know, cut off his wife's head and threw his daughter in a vat of acid as he's dining with his wife and two children at their mansion and he sits there and he blows away the wife and the two kids in front of him before he kills the bad guy which he does just without you know and, and TJ you made this point to me when we were talking yesterday without a soliloquy right just pop right and for me as I was re-watching it again I thought 
God, that's cold. You know, and you, you know, you just don't see that. That's like, wait a minute, man. How do you, you know, how do you kill somebody's kids? You, you know, I mean, that was just the, 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 the coldness there really shook me. Yeah. And I like that as opposed to Chocolat, which has a very clear sort of a standard Star Warsy kind of a, you know, the characters are set, there's conflict, right. there's the climax, there's resolution and happy ending. That is not Sicario. <laughs> it ends basically, there's not really any growth. It's not like anybody learns to become a better person. Alejandro and Matt are who they are. Kate is who she is. And she probably slinks away to a small town where she can follow the rule of law. It's like there's an acceptance of we all are who we are. There's not really any growth here. We're just going to accept the way things are. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, TJ Dahl, at the beginning, you said that this is a great, you know, sort of, I think you said a character journey or a character arc or something. Um, But I would agree, there's not really any growth in people, right? It is, there is an arc, right? And there is some acceptance of that ambiguity, but it's a grudging acceptance, right? You don't feel like Kate is a better person at the end of this, right? And she will never be the same. Yes. I was going to say, if anything, she's more damaged, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Uh, What did you think about Josh Brolin's character? I thought he was a great navigating eight. Just really powerful, forceful. I saw a lot of navigating in the scene when he's he's at the briefing right before the Juarez raid. And he's cracking jokes with the guy who picks them up out of the plane. And he's cracking jokes during the briefing. And like, he knows exactly who's who and how to create and cement those bonds. He's also very discerning of like, what do I need to tell you? I'm perfectly fine to lie to you. And if someone defies me, I will pin them to the ground and punch them and make sure they know what's what. (laughs) Even if it's a girl, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) After she punched him in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, TJ uh, Ingrassi, what what were your thoughts on the Brolin character? Yeah, I I can see that. I was a little ambiguous. I mean, I felt like there was some seven-ish kind of stuff. I can also see the eight-ish kind of stuff. And I bring it up because... I think there's this recurring theme that I've seen in a lot of films that pits, it's basically like a one versus a seven. And it might not be characters that are literally a one and literally a seven, but it's like a a one-ish energy and a seven-ish energy. So I've got a list here of some examples. So uh, Steve Rogers and Tony Stark from the Avengers series, Robin Williams and Sally Field in Mrs. Doubtfire, Stanley Ipkiss and his alter ego, The Mask in The Mask. Peggy Olson and Stan Rizzo in Mad Men. Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones. Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein in French Kiss. Now, again, they might not all be ones and sevens, but it's like, what is what happens when this rigid, repressed person comes up against like a spontaneous, fun, let's see what happens kind of energy? How are these two characters going to resolve that dilemma? It is kind of a movie trope, right? Um Tom Condon has has commented on this. It's in his book. Yeah. So you've also got Jack Nicholson versus Louise Fletcher in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You've got Amadeus and his father in in Amadeus. Uh, It shows up a lot. And I think it shows up a lot because because it's real. It's because ones and sevens have this connection. This is part of the human condition, and so it comes out in films because films are portraying what real life is like. Yes. Yes. Uh, For sure. How do you contrast a one vividly? Yes. You see a lot of ones as authority figures, like in a movie like Animal House or Old School, where there's like the seven-ish frat that just wants to have fun and party. And then you've got the stern moral authority yeah. of like, yeah. why are you kids yeah. misbehaving? You can't, these are the rules and blah, blah. 
I just watched Animal House for the first time like a week really? ago. Oh, yeah, wow. I, I don't know how I had never seen it. I was scrolling Netflix. <laughs> I thought, oh, man, I've never seen Animal House. And yeah, it's exactly what you're talking about there. I saw Animal House in the theater. <laughs> wow. Okay, good. Um, all right, great. Yeah, so that is a theme. The, the other one that's kind of classic uh, is uh, uh, the TV show, The Odd Couple. Uh, Felix and uh, Oscar. Now, if you watch the movie, Jack Lemmon is more of a two and Walter Matthau is more of an eight, but uh, the TV show was a one seven dynamic. Also, Sam and Diane from Cheers. You know, so yeah, this is, it's, it's a good comedic foil, right? A set of foils there for each other. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. Now we're going to continue our theme of double features that have never, ever occurred before uh, to anyone to, to bill as a double feature and go to something completely different, the movie Chocolat. Um uh, with uh, Juliette Binoche, um, Albert, Mol- uh, is it Albert Molina? Alfred. Oh, Alfred, thank you, Alfred Molina, and Johnny Depp, kind of, right? Uh, he had a much smaller role than I remembered uh, uh, in this movie. Um, who's going to tell us about Chocolat? T.J. Daw, I think you are, right? That's me, yeah. So Chocolat came out in 2000. It was based on a novel of the same name by Joanna Harris. It takes place in 1959, and at the beginning of the movie, Vienne, played by Juliette Binoche or Juliette Binoche and her young daughter arrive in an unnamed French village where the villagers were told through voiceover value tranquility above all else. She opens a chocolate shop. She makes her own confections. She makes friends with few of the locals and draws the condemnation of the mayor, the Comte de Renault, played by Alfred Molina, who is incensed that she has opened a confectionery during Lent when good Catholics fast and give up indulgences. Just as a reminder, France is a very Catholic country, particularly so in 1959. So the mayor tries to sway the town against Vienne and her chocolate shop. And soon a band of Romani people who live on riverboats arrive, which exacerbates his fury, especially when Vienne befriends them. And their leader, more or less, is Rue, played by Johnny Depp. The power struggle continues as Easter approaches and it climaxes with the Comte breaking into the chocolate shop at night, smashing the window display. But over the course of that, a single speck of chocolate splashes onto his lips, which he accidentally tastes, then gives into temptation, gorges himself on chocolates, passes out in the chocolates. Vian wakes him up in the morning, promises not to tell anyone. The two make peace and everyone lives happily ever after. These people are not welcome. I heard she's an atheist. What's that? Don't know. Opening a chocolatery just in time for Lent. Shameless, isn't it? Would you like to come in for some chocolate? What about boycott immorality then? 
offer your husband to awaken the passion. You've obviously never met my husband. You've obviously never tried these. Do you have more of those bean thingies, please? How many do you want? How many have you got? Academy Award winner Juliette Binoche. Academy Award winner Judy Dench. Alfred Molina. Academy nominee Lena Olin. And Johnny Depp. In the delicious comedy that feels as good as it tastes. Chocolat. So, the Johnny Depp character, what, what was the accent? What was he trying to do with that accent? Uh, you, you referred to him as a, a Romany uh, Romany, character. yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, right. The term people have generally used in the past is now believed to be a slur. The gypsies, right. So, yeah, right. so yes. Romany is considered just more respectful. And that's the same accent that Brad Pitt uses in Snatch. So, so I, I was thinking they were more the Irish, um, you know, version of that, right? Okay. All right, good. So I wasn't off. Good. Um, yeah, great. So um, TJ and Gracia, so you picked this movie uh, for us. Um, give us a quick why you picked this movie. Just, I, I think it's a great example, contrasting it with Sicario, Kate in Sicario, is so, her struggle is sort of like, how do I act in the world? What are the rules of engagement? How do I behave? And the mayor or the count or the comp or whatever we want to call him in, in Chocolat, it feels like his struggle is much more about the internal. Um, it's it's uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, but just your idea of restraint versus indulgence. Like that is a perfect metaphor. It's it's this constant restraint and 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 trying to bottle it up, which obviously explodes in the final scene when he when he eats the chocolate. But throughout the film, there's scenes where he's working at his desk and there's a tray with a croissant and some jelly. And in the first scene, he slides a picture of his wife in front of it to like block out the temptation. Then the next time we see it, he actually picks up the jelly and he opens it, and <laughs> smells it a little it. bit, and then he <laughs> and then he feels ashamed and he puts the jelly away. And you know, it's like, geez, dude, eat a croissant. It's not a big deal. Um, but yeah, just I think that's a it's the the film is a perfect uh the the arc of like if you're a one, you got to find a way to let some steam off. You got to eat a tr piece of chocolate cake, you know, spread it out a little bit over time so you don't freak out and eat a whole window full of chocolate in the dead of night. Yeah. So I, I want to ask TJ Dahl what, you know, you saw as, as scenes that were particularly one-ish in this, but I, I, I want to say something here, you know, before we go further, that for me, uh, so I saw Chocolat again when it was in the theater, hadn't watched it again until preparing for this, watched it twice. First time I watched it in preparation, I thought, yeah, you know, it's okay, but I started to get irritated with it for some reason, right? Um, and then watching it the second time, I was like kind of gritting my teeth to some extent. And as I was reading about it, something that was really helpful to me is that a number of the reviews referred to it as a fable, which I think helped me be a little bit more laid back about it because for me it's very much a one-ish movie but it's a stereotype of the one movie right it's an exaggerated you know now everything about the movie is one-ish right i mean you know they're searching for tranquility okay what is the what is the virtue of the one serenity right i mean basically the same thing okay everything about it is how do we behave and so forth okay so um i think as we go forward i just wanted to get that idea out there of it being a fable rather than something realistic like Sicario, 
it feels like a fairy tale. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, TJ Daw, tell us what you saw as one-ish. The village has a parish priest named Père Henri, who appears to be about 14 years old. He's very <laughs> deliberately cast as a youthful-looking actor. Yeah. He's new to the town. He's their new parish priest. And there's a scene when he's sweeping some snow out of the cemetery, and he's singing Hound Dog to himself and kind of dancing a little bit like Elvis. Unbeknownst to him, the mayor is watching him. And as soon as he discovers the fact that he's being watched, he immediately is embarrassed and tries to cover it up and is ashamed. And the mayor isn't like laughingly indulgent of like, oh, young people, they like the music of young people. He's immediately condemning of that. So it's that just seems to be the moral tenor of this village where this fable takes place. The mayor gives notes on the priest's sermons and a lot of them and coaches his delivery of them. And then during mass, he's sitting in the front row, mouthing the words of the sermon as the priest says them. And one of them, very much ghostwritten by the mayor, the gist of the sermon is temptation is everywhere. Satan wears many guises. You know, sometimes he's the singer of a lurid song you hear on the radio. At times, he's the author of a salacious novel. At times, the quiet man lurking in the schoolyard, asking your children if you might join their game. At times, the maker of sweet things, mere trifles, <laughs> for what could seem more harmless, more innocent than chocolate. I wonder what he's referring to there. <laughs> but I thought that's just such a beautiful perhaps exaggerated, but maybe not illustration of the inner life of a one, which is the sense of like temptation is everywhere. And if I don't keep a tight rein on this shit, all hell will break loose in the world around me and in myself. So it's important to understand the time that this movie was made. So it was released December 2000, the very end of the Clinton years. We had just gone through an impeachment of Bill Clinton over the stained dress. So all the conversation was around morality and um, you know what's appropriate behavior. There was the whole Ken Starr investigation and so forth. And this movie was in large part a response to that sort of political right moralism that was happening in the country at the time. Okay, um, and so you know, you know, there is this sort of moral tone to it. And without being explicit about it, everything about this movie was really about sex, right? I mean, you know, the, 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 the you know, the party at the end was a, a fertility celebration, right? And, you know, that, that she held, instead of having an Easter celebration, she was going to have a fertility celebration. And when she's laying out the chocolates and, you know, all this stuff that all the, um, you know, the uh, uh, sort of primitive art and things that she was bringing out. And the statue, what is the, st what is the piece of chocolate that sets the mare off the most? It's a naked new, woman. It's a naked woman, right? And, and you know, and his uh, longing over his wife was driving this, you know, who had left him. His wife has left him and he has a crush basically on his secretary, Caroline. Yes. And that's sort of the theme is he's, He's repressing his desire for chocolate. He's also repressing, which is really him repressing his desire for Caroline, yes. which, uh, you know, at the end, eventually he works up his courage to ask her out, but only six months six later. Six months later, right. <laughs> and she's probably a one as well. Yes. She struck me as a preserving one in this, right? So that sort of very restrained, very, you know, held on, very prim and proper, you know, sort of one. Um, and, and, you know, to further the point, uh, about restraint, it takes place during Lent, 
okay, which is, you know, the period of sacrifice and restraint and suffering, right? Um, so, uh, TJ Dog, go ahead. I, I kind of interrupted you there when you were saying what was one-ish about this. Another actor that I thought, the character of Armand, played by Judy Dench, seemed, could be a one, there's certain eight-ish elements to her, but... Yeah. Judy Dench, I wouldn't be surprised if she was one in real life. She very much played a one in Mrs. Brown, where she played Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love. And her version of M in the James Bond movies is very yeah. one-ish as well. So she adds a real one-ish presence to it, even though she's an ally of Vienne and the chocolate shop. But she kind of butts heads with her one-ish daughter over what's the right way to live and take care of herself and how the grandson should be raised. Yeah. And and I think that's an important point because we assume, or some people assume, that ones follow all the moral rules, right? The kind of standard, you know, church doctrines. Okay. It's not the case, right? The the, the they're following rules, but they can come from different places. Right. I'm sure there were I'm sure there were lots of Nazis who were ones, for example. Right. Um, and so just because somebody's a one doesn't mean that they're trying to adhere to the moral norms that everybody else has. Okay. It's an important thing. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So this movie, all one stuff. And so my perspective on the uh, the mayor character, the, the Comte, I'm not... I'm, I'm staying away from the French. Uh, so, so, <laughs> the Alfred Molina character, very much a one. And in most of the Enneagram literature, he would be identified as a social one because most of the Enneagram literature says that social ones are, you know, trying to get everybody to follow the rules and that sort of thing. Maybe that's this other category that some people call social one. But for me, that's not a navigating one, okay? Kate from Sicario is a navigating one. This guy is what I would call a transmitting one. And why do I say that? Look, transmitting ones are spewing the rules, right? They're, they're taking this internalized idea of what it is to be perfect and projecting it out into the world and expecting the world to conform to this. And from the moment we meet the mayor, he is trying to hold other people to the rules. Now, he's holding himself or trying to hold himself to those rules as well. But again, he's not navigating to figure out what the rules are. He has dictated the rules to the community, right? He is going by his religious beliefs as the rules, right? So I have set the rules. Now I will expect myself to follow them and I will expect you to conform to them as well. And if you do not, I will run you out of here like the vermin you are. He is taking every opportunity he can to transmit those rules to other people, right? To share them, to express them, to, you know, he writes the sermons. I was at, uh, I was in Geneva years ago and I, I have this thing whenever I travel. I love to go to cathedrals, right? So I love to see the great cathedrals of the world. And so I went to uh, Saint-Pierre in Geneva, which is the cathedral where John Calvin was the minister. Okay. Now, for those of you who don't know who John Calvin was, a very, very influential theologian in um, reform Christian theology. And um, 
you can still see the chair that John Calvin sat in after he retired as the minister. And it was very much like the mayor in this movie where it was right in front of the pulpit. And I can just in my mind imagine Calvin sitting there giving notes to whoever the minister was, right? And nodding and mouthing along to the words that he had written, much like the mayor was. Okay. So again, for me, in the mayor here, there's no reading of other people like Kate did in Sicario, right? Couldn't care less about what other people are thinking. It was all about, here's what you shall do. So in my view, the transmitting one, yes, there's this sexual element to them. And he was all about repressed sexuality. Okay. There's an anger to him. And this guy was angry, right? I mean, he didn't express it all the time, but you could see the anger underneath of him. But it's all about trying to get other people to be perfect as they become try to become perfect themselves. Okay. So that's my rationale for why he's a, a transmitting one. I see the Vian character as very much a transmitting two. Ah. And there's a okay. contest about halfway through this movie of transmitting one versus, tra- well, the whole movie's a con- contest between this one and this particular two of like whose morality, whose way of being is going to have the stronger influence on the town. And this crystallizes in parallel scenes that are intercut where Josephine, this woman who is uh, played by Lena Olin, has left her abusive husband, Serge, who runs a cafe. And Vienna's taken her in and she's living with her and she's showing her how to make chocolate and how to, you know, she's now an employee of the chocolaterie. And at the same time, Serge is under the wing of the mayor who's trying to turn him into a good Catholic and who's supervising getting him a shave and he's making him sit in catechism classes. And it's very much like, which of the two of us is going to have the disciple that will become the person that we want them to be? Yeah. Uh, so I agree with you, uh, both transmitters. So on the um, character of VN, I was initially thinking too, but there were things about her that I didn't see as two-ish. I didn't see um, the, the transmitting two can be very um, intense and aggressive and emotional when they're under stress. And I didn't see much of that with her. And I thought her forgiveness of the mayor after he destroys her chocolate shop or the chocolates in it and her immediate reaction of here, drink this and don't worry, I won't tell anyone. While that on the surface might seem kind of helper two-ish, it's not for me as consistent with the transmitting to. I actually, now again, the reason I thought it was important to talk about this as a fable, because I don't think her character was well drawn as anything. Okay. And the Johnny Depp character as well. I wouldn't venture onto, you know, oh, he's a clear case of this. I, I leaned a little bit more toward the transmitting nine for Vienne. Okay. And uh, I got there because I'm watching it and I'm thinking, yeah, I thought to at first, but mm, feels off. Right. Um, and usually when I can't figure out what somebody is, I end up seeing them as a transmitting nine. <laughs> so I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's just a, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a default get out of jail free card or something. But, uh, uh, that, that, again, I, I won't argue strongly either way. A big two-ish thing that's a runner of her character is that she brags that she has a knack for knowing what somebody's favorite is. Yes. 
and to give yeah. them the favorite thing. And it yes. drives her crazy when Johnny Depp keeps evading her understanding of what his favorite thing is. That's a really good point. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And I even wrote down in my notes, two-ish pride with that, right? Uh, so that is the pride of the two. So that's a good a good case. Um, so for me, again, I just don't think it was a strongly drawn character. Um, and there were pieces of each. One of the things I see in um, transmitting nines is the humble brag right it's this you know it's not this i am great like a transmitting three will say like a arnold schwarzenegger right there's no humbleness about his bragging okay it's just i'm awesome um the nine will kind of deflect and they'll do the humble brag in some way now i don't think that's what she was doing and what you were talking about there tj but it's just their their bragging tends to be less direct very often but they'll still do it so, but you know, again, I just don't think it was a super distinct character. Okay. Um, also, uh, again, uh, I think you guys touched on this, you know, very much the uh, path from resentment to uh, resentment and anger to tranquility throughout this movie. Okay. Particularly with the mayor character. Once he had this breakthrough, then he, the, the narrator even said that he had this sense of tranquility fall over him and calm and so forth. You know, so very, very good depiction of the one. I think an important factor in that is the fact that Vienne promises to keep it a secret. Yes. That she honors what his morals are. She doesn't use this as, as a way to showcase what a hypocrite he is to the town, to have him renounced, run out of town, anything like that. But just as a way of like, between you and I, we know. Yeah. You love chocolate just as much as anybody else. We all need this. It is good to need this. You don't need to be shamed for this. The priest's final sermon was just such a beautiful encapsulation of this, where he's and, I, and it's such a it's a beautiful lesson for ones to hear when he and he's talking about Jesus. He says, "I don't want to talk about his divinity. I'd rather talk about his humanity. How he lived his life here on earth, his kindness, his tolerance." And he goes on to say, "You know, I think we should." We shouldn't go around judging people by, you know, uh, me- measuring our goodness by what we do and don't do, by what we deny ourselves and who we exclude. We should measure by what we embrace, what we create, who we include. And, and I, you know, obviously this is directly referring to the Count and Vienne. You might think you have the right way to do things, that your good, your view of the world is, you know, you, you've got the handle on the way things ought to be. But really, it's VN who really was the more Christ-like figure in the film. She's the one who's kind. She's the one who's tolerant. She includes him and embraces him and forgives him when he destroys her chocolate shop. Yeah. And and I think he, at the very end, after he he takes a bite of the chocolate cake at the festival, and you can see him, he has just sort of this release he allows himself to enjoy a one bite of chocolate cake. And then he turns and he looks at Vienne and she looks at him and he kind of acknowledges her and smiles and she acknowledges him and smiles back. And it's sort of this, it's this integration of, you know, not that she's a seven, but sort of this one-ish and the seven-ish thing where there's an acceptance and a, um, I don't know. Yeah. Just, it's just very beautiful scene for me. Pleasure is okay. Yes. All right, great. Um, uh, TJ, um, any other uh, type one movies or tropes or archetypes that you want to touch on? 
Unlike some of the previous episodes, I wasn't able to come up with a genre that is inherently one-ish, other than perhaps biopics of political figures. Uh, not all of whom are ones, but generally biopics of political figures show somebody who is doing the right thing and quite often doing it against insane odds and sticks to the guns for it. So a good example of that is Gandhi and the character of Gandhi is very much a one. Uh, some other specific movies that I thought of and actors, basically anything with Emma Thompson in a lead role, she's probably a one. One of my favorite movies with her in it is Wit, another one that just came out is good luck to you, Leo Grande. One of the ones we talked about for this podcast with her is Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, Gregory Peck is an icon of a one, pretty much always played a one. Uh, favorite movie that he's in of mine is The Guns of Navarone, a great World War II action movie. He's famously a one in To Kill a Mockingbird, also in Moby Dick. Authority figures, as we talked about, another example of that is The Principal in Back to the Future. Catherine Hepburn's another great one. Pretty much always played ones. The African Queen is a good example. Uh, the character of Rorschach in the Watchmen movie, I think is a great one. Uh, Hot Fuzz is one of my favorite movies with a one main character. Very much the evolution of a one. He plays a by the book kind of super cop who's sent to a small village in England. Booksmart is a movie about two high school friends and it's the last weekend of school and they want to have some fun before they graduate. And Beanie Feldstein plays very much a one. And this is like her last chance to actually have a good time. And then a comedy that I saw just a few months ago that I loved, which didn't do great at the box office. It's a very recent movie, Bros, produced by Judd Apatow with Billy Eichner playing a podcaster called Bobby. And to return to the point you said before, you know, ones aren't necessarily the stiff, by the book, moral majority type. He's a gay man living in New York. He has lots of sex and he's very one-ish about it. You know, he's very one-ish about gay rights. He's very one-ish about the way he wants to live. And I thought the movie was just outstandingly funny. And it's about his relationship with a nine. So there's a lot of good movies about ones. I wouldn't say that there's any specific genre that is just like, if you want some other than perhaps documentaries, documentaries can be about any subject. They can have any tone but they can appeal to not only a ones, but anybody's sensibility of this is good for me. It is good. <laughs> it is morally enriching to know more about a given topic. It elevates the spirit. Documentaries are better than uh, reality TV. Maybe. <laughs> Damn straight. I'm, I'm learning. So even if I'm bored or, uh, you know, disinterested, at least I'm learning. So it's like taking good medicine. Right? It's the right thing to do. Mario. <laughs> Yeah. Even if I'm just yeah. sitting watching something, gotcha. something productive is happening. Yeah, good. All right, everybody. Well, thanks. Uh, so that wraps up our episode on Type 1. And, you know, despite our warning at the beginning of the episode, I think we did have a bit of fun, or at least I did. And uh, I'll allow it. There, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so we're not just here to work. We're here to have fun, too. So until next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.